You are listening to National Security Law Today. This is National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for tuning in. According to the most recent national intelligence estimate, the risks to national security interests will increase as countries respond to the intensifying physical effects of climate change. Everybody wants to do the right thing, and many people are hoping to leave combustion engines behind for electric vehicles that run on batteries. But batteries need minerals, and minerals mining comes with secondary consequences that we really need to consider now and not at some later point. We've devoted an entire series to this national security area, and to illustrate the varied and complicated issues, we focused on one kind of mining, seabed mining, in the Clarion-Clipperton zone of the Eastern Pacific. Now, we have heard from ocean conservationists, the mining industry itself, and the lawyers who understand the law that governs the best. The mining, we learned, is largely regulated by the International Seabed Authority, or as we'll refer to it here, the ISA. But that agency has a very narrow jurisdiction. We've also learned that the United States is not a party to the Law of the Seas Treaty and only has observer status at the ISA. We've also heard from the seabed cable industry. And what they've said is that none of this really considers their interests. If climate change presents an existential threat to our species and our national security, then what role does the seabed play in regulating the climate? And what species are down there in the dark abyss that may play an important role in stabilizing the climate? We're now going to turn to a biologist who can address the claims that the seabed mining is less harmful to the environment than many of the other options. Now, let me add, you should listen to this portion, the last portion of our series, in conjunction with our portion from a battery scientist. What you may find out is that both marine biologists and battery scientists may actually be saying the same thing. Our guest today is Alex Rogers, who served as Professor of Conservation Biology at the University of Oxford in the UK. He is still a visiting professor at Oxford and a senior research fellow at Somerville College. Alex is also science director of the Norwegian not-for-profit Rev Ocean. Alex, thanks for joining us. Many thanks, Elisa. It's my pleasure. All right, Alex, educate us. Please give us a quick overview of the seabed and especially the seabed in the CCZ. Well, the seafloor in the Clarion-Clipton fracture zone is very deep. We're talking about depths between four to 6,000 meters. It covers a vast area, somewhere between six to nine million square kilometers, which is about the area of, I think, the 22 largest countries in Europe. It's extremely cold. There's no sunlight, so it's very, very dark. The seafloor was thought to be very flat and covered in sediment, and also with these nodules occurring in varying densities. But we now also know that it has hills and it has seamounts as well. So a much more varied topography than we originally thought. Okay. Would you agree with the position of the mining industry that there really are fewer species on the seabed than in the rainforests, which are also places where mineral deposits can be found? Looking at biodiversity is not quite as simple as the mining companies would have us believe. 
Biodiversity actually means the variation in life. So it goes from the genetic variation within species, like us humans, for example, all the way up to the variety of habitats and ecosystems we find on Earth. It is true that there are more species on land than in the ocean, and that's a generality. And that is mainly because there are really vast numbers of species of insects on land, over 5 million of them. There are only estimated to be 2 million species in the ocean, of which we've described about 10%. One of the things to bear in mind here, though, is that we've only explored a tiny fraction of the ocean. So my confidence in these numbers, certainly for marine species diversity, is fairly low. If we look at biodiversity in another way, and that's at a number of higher taxa in the oceans compared to land, the picture is very, very different. So out of the 32 or 33 phyla, and phyla are the big groups of organisms, so mollusks are a phylum, this is the group that has snails in it and squids and so on. If you look at the phyla of the 32 or 33 phyla on Earth, only one of them doesn't occur in the ocean, whereas only 17 occur on land and in fresh water. So from the perspective of higher groups of organisms, there is much higher diversity in the ocean and in the clarion clipton fracture zone. Okay, well, having established that, please tell us what you know about the role that the seabed plays in something that's all important to resisting the dramatic and steep change in the climate. Specifically, that's carbon capture and sequestration. Yeah, the ocean plays a very large role in carbon sequestration. In fact, the deep sea is the largest repository of carbon in the sort of active carbon system of Earth. Carbon dioxide is absorbed by phytoplankton and cyanobacteria at the ocean surface. You can think of these as microscopic plants. Some of that carbon dioxide is fixed as carbon in the tissues of these organisms, and this forms the basis of ocean food webs. So these microscopic plants die and they're eaten. And although a lot of the carbon in their tissues is actually recycled, some of it sinks into the deep ocean. And some of it is also transported actively by animals migrating from the surface into the deep sea. That transport of carbon means that quite a large proportion of the CO2 that's stored in natural ecosystems is transported into the deep sea and stored there, where it, it remains for hundreds or even thousands of years. So this is one of our true long-term places where carbon is sequestered and stored. And um, to give you an idea of, of just how much carbon, it's been estimated that over 2,000 billion tonnes of carbon are stored in the deep seabed. And that compares to about 300 billion tonnes of carbon stored in all forests on land. The ocean really is the big player in terms of carbon storage. But let's talk for a minute about this sort of coveted resource, which is these polymetallic nodules that exist on the seabed. What role do you think they play in this cycle? 
Well, the carbon in the clarin-clipton fracture zone is mainly stored in the sediments on which the polymetallic nodules actually lie, or they lie partially buried in there. The manganese nodules themselves, though, do host a wide variety of animal life. Readers or listeners may not be um, familiar with life in the deep ocean, but on these nodules are found a wide variety of animals like sponges, corals, sea anemones, and wandering around the sediments are large creatures like sea cucumbers. And then in the sediments themselves are a whole variety of small animals like worms and crustaceans, which live both on and in the sediment. And these animals do play a role in capturing organic carbon and storing it in the sediment. But it does rain down from the surface and kind of passively settle on the sediments as well. Modeling studies suggest that if these manganese nodules are removed, then it will knock out about a quarter to a third of a species living in the Clarion-Clipton fracture zone on the seabed and a quarter to the third of the biological links in the ecosystem will also be lost as a result of mining these nodules. We know from experiments where scientists have dragged various rather exotic devices across the sea floor to mimic the disturbance of deep sea mining. As scientists have gone back to these spots over the last 20 or 30 years, you can still actually see those disturbance marks in the seafloor because it's such a quiet and quiescent environment. And we know that the biological communities have not fully recovered over that time. And there are estimates that certainly some of the geochemical processes associated with disturbed spots won't recover for thousands of years. And the nodules themselves they take millions of years to grow. So effectively, if we remove them, they're not coming back in even the long-term future. All right. Now you are writing, or at least you have written perhaps, a paper on the underestimation of the role of the sea and carbon sequestration. Do you mind talking a bit about your thesis and findings? Yes, that's right. I'm writing paper with colleagues from Norway and also from Canada. And the reason I, I felt this paper was really needed was because the ocean has been very poorly represented in our climate negotiations. At least at COP26, recently in, in the UK, the oceans are now being mentioned, but up to now they've really been neglected in the context of climate. And what my study is showing is that, you know, sequestration of carbon in the oceans is really a question of scale. Up to now, there's been a big focus amongst scientists and NGOs on what we call coastal blue carbon ecosystems. These are things like mangrove forests, seagrass beds, and salt marshes, where carbon is trapped in the plants themselves, but also it's trapped in the mud and the sand around this vegetation in these ecosystems. However, if we look at other marine ecosystems, just by virtue of their size, they sequester and store much more carbon. I've already mentioned the deep ocean, which stores about 2,000 billion tonnes of carbon in deep sea 
sediments, but we must also remember that places like the continental shelves, which are covered in sediments and, and a number of other types of seafloor, also store significant quantities of carbon. Now, of course, for us to kind of think about the use of these systems in terms of combating climate change, we have to think about whether human activities can actually affect these ecosystems. Obviously, with coastal blue carbon ecosystems, we can destroy those systems. So mangrove forests can be cut down, or indeed we can restore those ecosystems to give us more carbon sequestration. Now, up to now, it's been thought we can't really affect these other systems. But just last year, a paper was published showing that trawling on the seafloor on continental shelves probably releases about half a billion tonnes of carbon every year, which is more than the carbon that's sequestered by mangrove forests. So human actions and activities really can influence carbon in these massive ocean carbon reservoirs. Another really good example of this is uh, I've been looking into the amount of carbon transported by what's called the deep scattering layer. And what this is, is essentially the world's biggest migration that happens every single day. So as the sun goes down, there's loads of animals sitting in deep water that migrate up to the surface of the ocean and feed at the surface at night. And when the sun comes up, they dive back down into the deep sea and transport the carbon they've been eating back down with them and release it into the deep ocean or a portion of it. So these are animals like lanternfish, shrimps, squids, and even certain types of gelatinous animals as well. And they actually transport something like 900 to three and a half million tons of carbon from the surface into the deep sea every year. Okay, well, that data would seem rather conclusive, but what can we say about alternatives to batteries that require these minerals and about blue economies and electrofuels? Yeah, as we're finding out, for example, various car companies, they don't want to source metals from the oceans and they don't want really to source it from you know, tropical rainforests. So there's a big momentum to find alternative technologies rather than the battery technologies we have today, which use these expensive and quite rare metals like nickel and cobalt, for example. There is a real drive in terms of research to find alternative battery technologies. I've also been working on the blue economy of a number of countries around the world. And these places like South Pacific Islands, places in Asia, and various other areas. And there, there's huge interest in using renewable energy. And these are things like ocean wind power, ocean thermal energy conversion, and also underwater turbines to actually power the production of electrofuels. So these are things like hydrogen and ammonia, which can be used to power our transport systems in the future. So I'm not even convinced that electric power from batteries in transport is necessarily our future or the whole of our future. I think really we're still seeing where this whole renewable energy revolution is going in terms of energy and energy storage systems. 
I would also point out that really managing and monitoring deep ocean mining is going to be extremely expensive. If I want to take a scientific ship out into the ocean to do work on the clarion Clipperton fracture zone, it will cost me somewhere between a million to two or even three million dollars for a month of work. So you can imagine monitoring the environmental impacts of deep sea mining is going to be very, very expensive indeed compared with land where we can monitor what's going on from satellites or by visiting sites which are impacted by mining simply by, you know, walking into them and sampling them. In terms of terrestrial mining, you know, where we do need these metals, then we really must think about ways of um, putting pressure on countries and companies to ensure that they mine in a much more responsible way that takes care of the environment and also takes care of the people who are actually involved in these activities. You know, it's interesting you discuss how difficult and expensive it would be to do on-site monitoring of these companies. I'm sure you're aware that, for example, the metals company says, well, we'll broadcast it from a camera live. I'm not sure what that would do in terms of quantitative measurement of anything that's occurring other than provide an image over YouTube. I'm not sure that that would actually amount to much monitoring, but I don't know if you have anything you'd like to say about that. My first response to that is you probably wouldn't see much because of the sediment clouds produced by the mining activity. It's certainly not going to produce any useful quantitative data unless you have the cameras pointed in front of the uh, mining device to see what animals it's actually hoovering up. And even then, you would only be seeing the larger animals hoovered up from the seafloor. You wouldn't be seeing the smaller animals, which is by far the largest component of diversity. And you wouldn't see the impacts on the water column above the seafloor either. So just to respond to that, so what you're saying is it's really a bit of theater. Uh, Yes. All right, then. Well, we Americans, but sadly as much, I think Europeans, we've grown accustomed to thinking in the short term. We file quarterly corporate filings. We follow breaking news. We expect same-day delivery. Let's talk for a moment about genomic studies and what they can do to explain the legacy of the deep ocean species. Let's talk a bit about their time frame and how it stands, their evolution time frame, that is, and how it stands in great and shocking juxtaposition to our current way of thinking. Absolutely. I mean, what we've got to remember here is that life began in the ocean. The ocean really is the crucible of life. So within the ocean, as I said, we have this enormous diversity of higher taxonomic categories, phyla and classes of animals rather than just species. And this represents a legacy of about four billion years of evolution. So you can imagine the enormous genetic legacy of all of that evolution held within a marine life and deep sea life as well. This really is the dark matter of of biology. We know that biodiversity is critically important in terms of ecosystem functions. There is a positive relationship between biodiversity and ecosystem functions. And of course, ecosystem functions form the basis of ecosystem services to you and I. So we know when we lose biodiversity, we lose ecosystem function and it undermines 
nature's services to people. But this genetic legacy really holds, as I said, you know, you can really think of it as dark matter in terms of we know it's very important, but we don't know exactly uh, how it does what it does. You know, we know it holds some some great scientific secrets. So from what we've already found in marine organisms, we know that genetic diversity of life in the ocean and in the deep ocean is going to help us solve basic scientific questions around developmental biology, neurobiology. There are going to be new medicines, things like antibiotics, anti-cancer drugs, painkillers. These have already been found in deep sea sponges, for example, marine mollusks and other animals, and have gone through to the stage of being licensed drugs used to treat people. But also, you know, new ways of enhancing food sustainability, new industrial enzymes, which will lower energy requirements for industrial processes, and many of these other things which we refer to as marine genetic resources. And indeed, the biodiversity of the high seas is currently subject to negotiations for a new international treaty to protect that biodiversity and to really regulate the use of the genetic resources of the deep ocean. I think the, the other thing I would just like to point out here is that the deep sea is the last great wilderness on Earth. It's the largest area, which is it's not completely untouched by humankind, unfortunately. There are microplastics in the deep ocean. There are persistent organic pollutants. But largely, it is undisturbed, certainly when you get below 1,000 metres or more in depth. I've been down there. I've dived in a submersible to about 3,800 metres depth, which is not even the average depth of the oceans, but it's very deep. And it is like diving onto another world. There is no sign of humankind, at least in the place where I dived. Everything is draped in this very pale white sediment. There are creatures which look like alien life swimming up to the submersible. And as you go up towards the surface and turn the lights off in the submarine, then you see this amazing display of bioluminescence because many of the animals in the zone between about 2,000 metres to 200 metres deep use light for a range of purposes, such as communication or finding food or even hiding themselves. So this really is an enormous, I guess, heritage for all humankind in terms of being this last wilderness on, on Earth. So there is actually a moral aspect to exploitation and responsible exploitation of the deep ocean as well. Right. And that is, again, what the language of the law says is that it's to be used for all mankind. Alex, thank you so much for speaking to us. We hope to have you back in the future as these issues develop further. Thank you very much, Elisa. I'll be very happy to come back. We hope you've enjoyed this series on the complex national security issues that attend our shift to battery technology. We'll see you next Thursday when our new episodes drop. Remember, the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep bringing you national security issues every week. Hit that subscribe button on your listening app of choice, and you can reach out to us and tell us what topics you would like to cover, or you can send us feedback. 
Find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Remember, the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Thank you for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 